You've heard us talk so many times about food as medicine. Today we'll be joined by Jennifer Maynard, who lives that every day of her life. She is CEO and co-founder of Nutrition for Longevity and has worked in the biotech and pharmaceutical space for more than 20 years, as well as being a farmer herself. We'll be talking about how to make a real change in the food and health space and how you can use color to pick the best ingredients for your meal. We'll also discuss regenerative farming, how to implement it, and why it's so important to the future of farming. Finally, you'll learn how to adopt better food habits for your whole family. Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that's more than just health and wellness information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi, folks. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com. Also, check out and subscribe to the Healthy Directions YouTube channel, which features video versions of our episodes plus extra videos you won't want to miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steve Sinatra, and other health experts at HealthyDirections.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Be Healthistic. My father and I are joined today by Jennifer Maynard. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. Welcome. I'm <laughs> happy to be here. So my father and I are obviously big into nutrition, and uh, we'd love to hear about that. First, I want to hear about how you worked for the pharmaceutical and biotech industry and how that transition occurred and what happened with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people um, expect to hear my background, per se, um, now that I'm a bit of a farmer and somebody really focusing on food as medicine. Um, but I did start in the biotech and pharmaceutical industry when I was much younger, and I lost my uncle to HIV AIDS in the 80s, and there was really no standard of care. And I wanted to try to do something to bring illnesses like that forward. And so that was what my passion was. I moved into specialty medicines and I did that really for over 20 years. And I loved part of what I did and felt like we have made leaps and bounds in some of these areas like HIV AIDS. It's very different than it was in the 80s. But as I moved up and had broader roles, when I looked at the overall state of healthcare in the United States, I just felt like we were missing a really core piece of it, which is nutrition. It's not really taught to most doctors in medical school. Uh, I think the average is they get about four hours of training on nutrition. Um, it's not any really standard of care or, or intervention. We don't really consider it medicine. And I've always lived a very holistic life. I've always grown most of my own food. Um, I grew up on a homestead in Alaska. And I just decided I wanted to go back to my roots. I wanted to start a company that focused more on not so much the pill. How do we move away from the pill? How do we move a little bit away from sick care and move much more into this holistic approach of medicine and have nutrition become not just 
how do we prevent illness, but even an important intervention to our current state of health. I couldn't ignore that we are losing the battle, in my opinion, with chronic illness. And I feel like nutrition is such an important part of that. So I had met Dr. Walter Longo and the CEO of El Nutra, and I just felt like they were doing so much to change that space. And I loved that it was still research driven. It wasn't just, I think we should eat this or we should eat that. They really put a lot of science behind it because I am a little bit of a geeky science person. I like to understand things a bit. But I think what they did is they found decades and decades uh, of research behind people that were already doing all these things and it was already working for them. So they looked at areas with high concentrations of centenarians and said, what are they doing right that we don't seem to understand, especially in the U.S., and how can we learn from them? So they found these pockets of centenarians in these longevity spaces, and then they worked it backwards and understood, well, what is it that they're doing, and then build science behind it. So it's like some cultures or areas of the world have already been doing this. They inherently understood it, but we kind of focused on the science behind, well, why is it happening, and and how can we take that to another level? So that's where I quit my job. I bought a farm because uh, part of what my belief is, is it's not just about eating any food. It's about very specific foods that are grown in a very specific way. Um, so we wanted to start with the farm. We wanted to start with the soil and really get to the core of it because I think that our farming practices are also impacting our food system and our health and then take it to the next level and build that into uh, a meal kitting company. And that's what I'm doing now is leading the farm, Greater Greens, and Nutrition for Longevity, which we brought together. And that's now kind of where my passion is, and we're trying to move that into truly food as medicine, where we can focus not just on prevention and eating healthy, but how can we actually help with type 2 diabetes and and these different chronic illnesses that we know a huge percentage of our population are suffering from there even I think this was really brought to light in the last few months with the COVID-19 crisis really understanding that not only if I have type 2 diabetes is it potentially going to impact my health and and my health span but even new illnesses that are starting to hit us is it making me more or less resilient and and more susceptible to those illnesses I still believe in the area of specialty medicine. I'm not an anti-pharma person entirely, but I do believe it needs to be in the right place. It needs to be to treat the right thing in a very specific way. And it should be only, it's just one tool that we're using in this whole repository of tools. And and that's where I feel like 90% of our focus is in that space. And the area where I think we can make an even bigger impact for a lower cost, we're hardly putting any effort into. So Again, that's where my passions really shifted and where I felt my expertise and my background, I could have a bigger impact. Yeah, true. Um, I'd like to just focus on something that Jennifer said, if you don't mind. Uh, I think this diabetic situation is really crucial. I, I absolutely agree with you. And at the American Nutraceutical Association, uh, we met in San Diego a few months ago. This situation in the United States where there are approximately 100 million diabetics uh, or pre-diabetics or ones with insulin resistance in the country. And especially with COVID-19, like Drew and I did a a podcast on the implications of overweight status, diabetes, higher blood sugars, higher hemoglobin 1Cs, and the susceptibility of uh, getting COVID-19. So it just makes sense to really focus on um, foods especially since you're the expert, foods that can heal 
or support the diabetic situation. And I just want to throw a few out there. Mm. I mean, avocado is one, garlic's another, berries are uh, certainly uh, uh, can be uh, supportive of, of, of blood sugar relationships. So I was wondering, in your longevity diet, if uh, you commented on uh, something very common, and by the way, Drew and I come from a diabetic family. Both my grandmother and my mother were diabetic. Uh, it just makes sense for um, Drew and I, for us, especially Drew and I, to keep our weights down. And, 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 and this has been a struggle throughout my entire life where I strive to keep my hemoglobin A1C you know, un- under 5.7. Um, yeah. So, and again, because of the genetics involved, and and again, because Americans are eating a high carbohydrate diet, and we're eating less healthier fats and stuff like that, I just wanted to give you the you know the platform on that uh, because yeah. I think helping people avoid insulin resistance and diabetes is crucial. Yeah, wouldn't you agree, Drew? As a natural path, I mean, you must Absolutely. see this. In, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Jennifer, I want to just speak to um, your business, and we'll, we'll get into this more, but the nu- Nutrition for Longevity, which is really the, the you know, farm-to-table meal uh, delivery service, because my father and I can only provide so much for patients in terms of the nutrition experience that we have, and, oh, you, you know, eat this, don't eat this, et cetera. But then there's a huge gap between, well, how do they actually do these things? And, and what you're doing is really helping create that bridge between the knowledge and information that we give people and then the actual, you know, stepping through that, yeah. you know, and, and actually making change in their life with the foods that they're eating. So I, I'm just so happy that you're actually providing this service to people. Thank you. Thank you. And it's, again, it's where my passion is also Dr. Longo and, and Joseph, the CEO of um, El Nutra, Dr. Anton, we just deeply believe in food as medicine and that this should be something that's readily available. And we feel like there's too much misinformation out there and that we're making it too hard for people to eat this way. If you look at the centenarian regions uh, or the longevity regions of the world, they've just always eaten this way. It's been passed down generation to generation. And and they do it by having small regenerative farms that they get a lot of their food from and they cook their food in a certain way. And it's it's not just what they eat, it's when they eat, it's how they eat it. It's even, you know, Dr. Longo's um, spent a lot of time researching fasting and fasting regimens. So, you know, there's his prolonged fast, which is Prolon, it's, it's another product. We do more the feeding side of things, but even things like intermittent fasting, and this has been shown to support type two diabetes as well. And there's more and more information on the benefits from heart disease, different things, is also allowing your body that full 12 hours to, you know, a circadian rhythm, time-restricted feeding. So it's not just what you're eating, but it's also are you giving your body enough time during the day to decompress and to start actually focusing on cellular regeneration? You know, how do I clean out my system at night? And, you know, in the U.S., we have access, well, across the world now, we pretty much have access to food 24-7, and we unfortunately consume it far in a, in a much bigger window than we should. So, you know, our cortisol is spiking. That should come down in the, in the evenings, and our melatonin should go up. But what's happening is we're continuing to eat, we're continuing to stimulate our body, and we're keeping that cortisol levels higher, longer, and we're not allowing our body to go into that regenerative state. So, a lot of what we focus on is also education, not just what is the right combination of food. You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, but also, you know, when should you be eating that? And it's not super restrictive. When people hear fasting, it's very scary to a lot of people. 
But a 12-12 circadian rhythm fast is very simple for just about anyone to implement. It's, you know, as simple as stop eating three to four hours before you go to bed and then sleep your full night and, and wake up and consume, you know, your food 12 hours later. So it's probably, in my opinion, one of the easiest regimens, even if people didn't change what they ate at all, but they changed that regimen in their life, it can make dramatic differences. So we also encourage more education, more awareness about the timing of how you eat as well, because we think it's really important for that cellular regeneration to happen. And that's what a a lot of the, the longevity diet, which our whole program is based on, is about the feeding and the fasting and what are the right foods when you are feeding For example, you know, it's a very low sugar diet and there's a reason for that. We have essentially no added sugars and that's because, you know, in the U.S. we are consuming about 50 grams more sugar a day on average than we should be. That's about 58 pounds of sugar a year for for anyone that hasn't kind of put it in that perspective. And we know from Longo's research that sugar accelerates aging genes. We also know that it downregulates um, different enzymes and um, different factors that also help with cellular regeneration. So we know that sugar can be very destructive. We know it's very much involved in chronic illness, yet we consume a lot more per day than we should. So our diet is very low in sugar, and we bring in natural sugars, but also even that we keep at a at a very good baseline. So a bit of fruit, but very heavy on vegetables. It's a it's a heavy plant based diet. And then protein. I think protein is such a concern in the U.S. Are we not getting enough protein? If you look at consumer reports, it's usually one of the number one things that most people are concerned about is, am I getting enough protein? But in the U.S., we also eat 50 grams on average more protein than we need per day until you're above age 65. And then you should be increasing your protein. But we kind of have this one one size fits all approach to things. And we're trying to change that and say, you know, this is really a healthy level of protein and we're going to help you do those macros so you don't have to do it on your own. And we're going to give you the science and the information behind it and make sure it's a really high quality protein that's coming into your diet. Because I think our, again, our diet's very plant-based. And I do think a lot of people that eat plant-based don't know how to get the right amount of protein and they don't go after the, the the right quantities, but also the right proteins. So we try to give a lot more guidance on that. A lot of the protein comes from legumes. We have nuts in the diet, a very broad, diverse diet, but again, a lot of it coming from plants. And And if people order the pescatarian diet, it comes with a little bit of high quality fish. So again, it's just this very focused way that we try to make it simple for people to consume and stay on this diet. Because if you buy, if if you just read the longevity diet book, we give recipes, you know, that information's out there, but the average person doesn't then go to the store and follow that. We try to just make it very easy. We talk about kind of re-imaging fast food because we try to get fresh produce from our farm to a consumer within 48 hours. So that's, we're saying, you know, it should be ultra fresh. It should be easily accessible, you know, show up on your doorstep and make it as easy as, as people, as, as it can be for people to consume that. Well, I, I wanted you to walk me through what that's like in terms of the food that's delivered, because I was looking on your website and you, you know, you buy these three days worth of food, whether that's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, how do people prepare the breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Is it mainly just kind of ready to go or do you have to prepare yeah. some of it beforehand, heat it up? Yeah. So, I mean, certain things, most of our salads, most of our lunches are mainly salads. I mean, they'll have a little bit of gluten-free grains in them, some of them, or they'll have legumes in them. 
but they're they're mainly a very high quality salad that gets you in a, in an exact calorie range. So they're they're very prescriptive in the calorie ranges, and that's ready to eat. It has a fresh patch of salad dressing that we make fresh each week. They pour that on, and they just need a fork. So that one's ready to go. The breakfast is a combination of different things. It might be a packet of oat, oatmeal for the morning. It might be a, a smoothie packet with a, a plant-based protein. It might be a gluten-free vegan muffin that doesn't have any added sugars and has some fresh fruit in it. So the the breakfast can vary from I can grab this muffin and eat it to I might need to do a little bit of mixing. And then the dinners are a meal kit, and that comes with everything pre-portioned so someone can cook it at home. And then just because we do want to kind of take it to the next level, we are in about two months launching a ready-made version as well that people can just heat and serve. And this is because we are moving very much into wanting to be more of an intervention so that even doctors can say, hey, here's this meal you can just heat and serve. And then there's no excuses, really. And people can can consume it in any way they need to. So we try to make it flexible. We also are just launching just a produce box for people that already are comfortable cooking. And like we have a lot of dietitians that love our our food, but they're like, I kind of know how to put a meal together. So we're trying to provide levels for people that they can maybe step into it with a fully ready-made meal. And then maybe they want to start cooking a little bit on their own. And then eventually, you know, we believe that we're training people how to eat properly maybe they then want to venture out on their own and they know what portion sizes look like and they know what that instead of protein being the main entree and the side dishes being vegetables, we kind of flip it and they start seeing what those volumes look like because the salads, people are really surprised. They think they're going to be really hungry after eating a salad. But if you look at the volume of what we could, we should be consuming as far as servings of fruits and vegetables, it's a lot of volume. And so you feel very satisfied but you didn't consume like a huge slug of unhealthy calories. It's very nutrient dense calories that you're consuming. And it's a lot of fiber. I think that's one of the biggest things we forget about in the American diet is we're so low on our fiber consumption. And there's so many studies that have been done to link that to chronic illness. So you definitely get a lot of fiber. That's probably one of the first things people tell us is there's a lot of fiber. (laughs) And they, you know, it, it, it takes them about a week for their system to totally get used to it. And then they're like, it's amazing. I'm the most regular I've ever been. I, I'm like on clockwork, my system and everything. And they start to see their bodies responding to this food. So that's what we're trying to do is make it as simple as possible and to give people options. If they feel, again, comfortable, they can buy the food just as as raw whole food, uh, fruits and vegetables and they can do it on their own, but we give them the stepping stone to do that. Yeah, the fiber, Jennifer, is a huge plus, especially from the cardiovascular point of view. I mean, this is something that's uh, really close to my own heart. I'm just curious, um, what are the co- constituents of your salad dressing? Um, what do you use in your salad dressings? We actually import olive oil. It's mainly olive oil, and mm-hmm. then we have different flavors. So a lot of it'll be um, like we have a lemon vinaigrette. It's it's like three ingredients. So it's your it might have um, an herb in it, like parsley or oregano. It'll have fresh squeezed lemons and olive oil. So we, we leave our salad dressings very simplistic with only a few um, ingredients. But the main thing in common with every salad dressing is our olive oil. It comes from centenarian groves in Italy, actually from Longo, Walter Longo's hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so it's a very polyphenol rich olive oil. We actually just launched it um, this week. Also, even as a product we sell because it's it's actually very difficult in the U.S. to get a very high quality cold pressed organic olive oil. So we had a lot of people asking, how do I get this? Um, so we also even just launched that as a product because if you look at a lot of the longevity regions, they consume these really high quality fats. Olive oil, I mean, across Italy is known for being, you know, I had one of the towns I was visiting say it's their elixir of life, but they they really do consume a lot of it in different regions of Italy in appropriate ways. But we like to put it in our salad dressings because it doesn't hit heat that way. It's not really meant to be a very high temperature oil. It's also in our dinner kits, but that's the main component in the salad dressings to get a, a healthy, controlled amount of fat also in the lunch. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because even the Bloomberg data that came out several months ago, where Okinawa now used to be the leading country in the world with the most centenarians, now it's been replaced by Spain, Portugal, and Italy yeah. uh, as, as a top three. So. And what's common to the Mediterranean basin, although Portugal is, you know, off to the side a little bit, what's common is really olive oil. And, yep. uh, you know, in my own research on this, I'll never forget, I came across an article about six or seven years ago that showed that olive oil changed uh, inflammatory gene expression. In other words, we all have pro-inflammatory genes. Mm -hmm. And it might be one of the reasons why the most centenarians in the world are in the Mediterranean basin is to, if they're consuming olive oil, and if olive oil takes pro-inflammatory genes and reverses them back to a non-inflammatory state, it just makes sense that, you know, olive oil is a secret sauce of the Mediterranean diet, or as you said, the golden elixir. So yeah. um, I'm all in when it comes to olive oil myself. Absolutely. And I think it's really, I think it's a really important change also to the American diet because we are consuming 24% more calories than we did in the 1950s. But 50% of those calories are coming from processed oils now in the U.S. So we're wanting to change that to where people are, you know, still consuming healthy fats, but they're really consuming these cold pressed, very low processed that you still keep these high polyphenol content because there's other oils as well. But olive oil is so high in polyphenols, also amino acids and fatty acids as the building blocks. And and that's really important that we're providing those right building blocks. So even if you're consuming these calories, it's a really, again, healthy dose and it's controlled. We're not giving people like massive amounts. It's a very specific amount. We have very um, tight macro ratios that we focus on so people get exactly what they need. But yeah, I think the quality oils is really missing from the U.S. diet. We consume a lot of processed oils, but not a lot of really clean oils. And I agree with you. I, I think olive oils with a high polyphenol content Olive oils with a, a high oleopurin uh, content, uh, I, I think, are the way to go. And, and probably why it's the secret sauce of the Mediterranean diet, you know, for Absolutely. all sorts of reasons. In fact, we had Dr. Gonzalez at the American College of Nutrition meeting several years ago. And, and that pre-demed study, despite the fact that it's come under some criticism from the New England Journal and other journals, they are still right on as far as, uh, you know, the, the higher fat let's say that the nut and olive oil diet uh, really excels in not only the reduction in diabetes, but also heart disease, neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's disease, and the list goes on and on. So yeah. we're both aligned on olive oil. And even my son Drew's a big olive oil person as well. Very good. <laughs> well, Jennifer, I want to hear more about the food as medicine, because uh, as, as my father and I do in, in our practices, 
uh, that's a huge component of, of what we do with our patients. So I'd love to hear your perspective on, and what you're doing too, also with regenerative medicine and how that connects to food as medicine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the important things, and, and as I mentioned, I, I was in the healthcare industry for quite some time, um, but really looking, as I mentioned, feeling like we were losing the battle against chronic illness. And if you look at now studies showing 80% of chronic illness is more linked to lifestyle, I think for the longest time, you know, as you mentioned, we linked it to our genetics and we thought there was nothing we could do. We just have to, you know, assume we're going to proactively go on medication. But I think we're now realizing there's a lot more that we can control. And that, and this is what's been very fascinating to me, both on the farming side, and I want to explain that a little bit, but also on the food side, that we're realizing that even things like our gut microbiome, which is very heavily impacted by the food we eat, is doing a lot more than we realized. It's actually impacting our neurotransmitters. Like 90% of our serotonin is created by our, our gut microbiome. Most of our immune system is lining our gut. And so really starting to, again, connect the science behind how food impacts our body and especially this anti-aging versus pro-aging side of things, knowing that 80% of chronic illness is heavily influenced by lifestyle. And then how can we make that bridge and make that readily available for people so they can start making those changes in their life. That's why, I, I, as I mentioned, I started with the farm because I, I do personally believe it all starts from the soil. So if we have a healthy soil microbiome and we produce biodiverse crops, which also helps the soil microbiome, we can produce incredibly healthy food that then we can feed our body. So our farm uses regenerative farming practices. We don't use any synthetic chemicals on the farm. So we have this clean food that doesn't have all of the pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, fungicides. And as well, we grow using organic practices. And a lot of studies are now showing that foods grown with these types of methods can have up to 30% more nutrients, mainly micronutrients that you don't see on a nutritional facts label. But we know a lot of times by the color and the flavor. So a lot of people that try our food is like, I haven't tried, I haven't tasted a tomato like this in since my grandma um, had a garden in her backyard. And so we're trying to bring those phytonutrients back to the surface where people are feeding their, their gut microbiome, they're feeding themselves with these high phytonutrients bringing a color spectrum back to the diet. You know, the diet in the U.S. is very muted, and we're noticing longevity regions have a diverse color palette. When when they're eating food, they're getting multiple colors on their plate. When they're growing food, they're also growing diverse ty types. So like a salad in Italy, you might have a red radaccio. You might have a vinaigrette and olive oil in there. It might have obviously leafy greens. They might have some tomatoes in there. So, you know, that's five colors that they've added to that salad. And we might have one here with iceberg lettuce, which I don't even know has a color. I mean, for me, that's like water and some sort of super processed vinaigrette and then maybe croutons. And we just added something that's also highly processed. So we've we've lost that color palette and we've also lost our connection to food where before our primitive brain, if we were highly under stress and, and under like very high consistent cortisol levels, our body used to really know how to connect with food. I need this red, um, super vibrant like berry because I know it's really high in lycopene and I need that in my body. Or I need these blueberries or purple Okinawa sweet potato because it's going to really bring 
these nutrients into my body and I need that resveratrol. I need that, that anthocyanins. I may not have known the science behind it, my, but, but my body used to be able to connect. And they've shown that your color spectrum actually changes when you're under stress and you see these more vivid colors. We're so disconnected to our food these days. We don't smell it. We don't touch it. It's so processed with artificial colors, artificial sweeteners. I mean, super processed. Even in the store, if you go to the produce, a lot of things are covered in wax. So you're not getting this connection to your food and you're not picking this broad um, color spectrum that your body actually needs. So we're very big on how do we bring in that biodiversity so you can also bring that biodiversity to your gut microbiome. How do we do it without chemicals so we're supporting that gut microbiome and that overall system and actually bringing in foods that are pro-aging. So in a positive way, they're actually are pro-longevity. They're not triggering aging genes. They're actually triggering longevity genes. And we know now some of these phytonutrients are doing this. We know the timing of eating, as I mentioned before, can support these pro-aging genes instead of activating aging genes, which we know now are linked to chronic illnesses. I mean, chronic illnesses basically are what causes aging or it's related to the aging process. So if we can decelerate that aging by proper foods, we can impact chronic illness. And that's kind of been our focus is Again, the right ingredients that aren't, we don't have all these synthetic um, different additives on them, but they're whole foods that the body can actually connect with, supporting that healthy aging. And then using fasting regimens to really boost that rege- that cellular regeneration even further. There was a paper that came out, uh, actually it was came out in October of 2019, and it was just um, reassessed in May of, of 2020, only a couple of weeks ago. And it's called Dietary Berries, Insulin Resistance, and Type 2 Diabetes, an Overview of Human Feeding Trials. Uh, again, since Drew and I come from a diabetic family, and since there's like 100 million diabetics in America, that's like one in 3.4 people. Yeah. Uh, it just makes sense to put berries in the diet. I mean, there's an, an, an incredible amount of literature on it. Yeah. So I really like what you said about, you know, having a colorful salad. I would take it to a higher level. I mean, the radicchio sounds great. The lettuce, you know, romaine lettuce sounds great. But why not put some blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, Absolutely. cranberries, and Absolutely. get all these colors of the rainbow and Absolutely. get all these phytonutrients, especially since... Now the research shows that these berries, which contain some natural fructose, and but, yeah. but you don't need insulin to get it into the cell. So Absolutely. it makes sense to have a real rainbow-colored salad because now we're thwarting off diabetes. Now yeah. we're eating something, and if you combine it with olive oil, again, the secret sauce, I think it just makes a lot of sense. So For sure. I just Absolutely. wanted to echo that. Yeah, absolutely. And make sure our reviewers got it, really got it. <laughs> Good. No, it's really important. I mean, I, I even when I shop with my kids, because I, I know a lot of other parents and they're like, my kids won't eat vegetables. They, they just won't eat any of these things. And so I, I kind of, I mean, it's been a little bit more difficult the last few months. But normally I bring my kids shopping and they, they each have the goal that they have to pick five colors. I don't care what it is. They have to pick it as long as it's in the produce section. <laughs> so, and they do that and they, and then they appreciate it. They're like, well, that's my broccoli. They even fight over whose it is, which I'm like, Great. My kids are fighting over broccoli. I'm happy as pie. But I think even for adults, it's important to have that in mind when they're shopping is if I'm in this produce section, how can I make sure I have at least five colors in my shopping cart and that I'm going to get those on my plate by tonight? 
because I just don't think we have that focus. And it's a it's, in my opinion, a relatively easy thing to do. We just have to be aware and conscious of it. And again, berries are such a delightful thing because you could have that as a wonderful snack. It can satiate a lot of cravings. It's it's not very high in sugar. And you can have this wonderful, enjoyable snack as well. It Everything doesn't have to be um, like a chore. You know, those are right, the things that right. you can add to your diet in a very delightful way. And berries go great with olive oil. I yeah, mean, the polyphenol absolutely. flavor of olive oil absolutely. and berries. Oh, it's it's like a match from heaven. I love it. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Jennifer, I was going to comment that you're describing to me food that's alive. And a lot of the food that we're eating today is dead. Mm-hmm. really is, right? I mean, the nutrient yeah. content's so low. It's been traveling for far distances across the country. And yes, people are not getting that rainbow colored assortment of, you know, fruits and vegetables. So I love what you're saying there. I had a question about um, the farming practice, that regenerative farming that you were talking about. Where in the continuum does that fall with organic farming and then also permaculture? Where where does it fall in that line? I mean, we try to do kind of all of it, right? So organic farming doesn't mean that you're necessarily regenerating the soil. So I can actually still use a lot of chemicals in organic farming and I could be plowing my fields to death. um, And I might not be really allowing my soil microorganisms to thrive. I could also have monocrops, which are also not allowing the soil microorganisms to thrive. So we take the organic side in the sense that we don't use any GMO crops and we don't use any synthetic chemicals. We actually try to use no chemicals. Like I would say the one thing we use, really one of the only things we use is diatomaceous earth. And Mm -hmm. that just irritates a lot of insects, but it doesn't, we do it at times that it doesn't impact our pollinators. We focus very heavily on pollinators because our insect population is down 80% in the last 30 years. So it's really at a devastating level. So we, we've dedicated five full acres to the farm that's only pollinator habitat and then we have hedgerows all over the farm that are specifically building up our native pollinators and insects but that we also focus on what's below the surface which i think is just starting to emerge as this regenerative farming and i don't like a lot of labels but obviously we have to so people understand what we're talking about because regenerative farming already i think is gone farther than i would like as far as now they're still using a lot of chemicals and but again, the, the point behind it is that you focus on things that regenerate the soil. So you keep the ground covered at all times like you would in a forest, right? If we mm-hmm. knock down trees in a forest with and, and then we step away, as long as we didn't completely coat it in chemicals, within a year, that forest will be green again. Maybe not, you know, 30, 40, 60 feet tall, but it'll be green with ferns, whatever's needed to cover the ground. And that's really to protect the soil and allow all the organisms under the soil to thrive. So we keep the ground covered with cover crops, whatever we can, as often as possible. We also do a lot of hedgerows, which are perennials usually. They build up the soil organic matter. We focus heavily on that rhizosphere, um, which is where the microbes are concentrated in the soil around the root base. It's it's what allows the plants to communicate with the, the microbes in the soil. And then, for example, because that root base is so important and it builds up a community of organisms, we leave the root mass in the ground. So other than crops that are root crops like carrots, we completely leave the root mass in the ground. So a tomato plant at the end of the season, we just chop it at the base and that allows those organisms to thrive. So everything we do is to try to build up the soil organic matter, which also sequesters carbon. It's great for the environment. It's it's considered by the United Nations the lowest cost way that we can, st- and the fastest way we can start reversing climate change. So it's really a win-win. 
I think for people to start realizing when we look at this whole system together, we can help human health and we can help planetary health. And it's not mutually exclusive. We can do it together. So that's what the farm really focuses on is how do we rebuild that soil so it's incredibly nutrient rich and that we have these organisms that are communicating to a plant and helping the plant cope with stress. You know, we look at the holobiome, which is the whole of all of the DNA and RNA of the plant cells, but also all the bacterial and viral and nematodes and everything that are associated with that overall system that help bring nutrients out of the soil into the plant so we get these super nutrient dense plants. And we can do it organically because when you allow that soil microbiome to thrive, you allow, you, you basically, it's just like with humans, we talked about it's not just genetics anymore that are inherited, but you expand the genetics of that microbiome where the plant actually has all this additional inherited knowledge or, or passed down knowledge that it can cope with stress. So just as an example, the soil microbiome can actually tell the plant, it can actually impact it at a genetic level. It can tell the plant if there's a drought coming, you need to respond to this by sending deeper or more lateral roots and root, and find root fibers so you can actually pour, pull more moisture into the plant. We never really understood that before, but these organisms are actually communicating. And we're seeing so such incredible parallels to the human gut microbiome because we also interact with our bacteria in our gut in a very similar way as the plants do with their soil microbiome. So we're creating these incredibly healthy plants. We're focusing on the soil microbiome, which helps them cope with stress. Just like when we have a healthy gut microbiome, it's helping us cope with stress and respond better to our environment because you're expanding your collective DNA that you can um, respond to these things with. It's I think of it as it's this shared knowledge that literally millions of years of knowledge could be passed down that that my body could actually use to support me in a better way. Well, as you're speaking there, I had this thought of, of Zach Bush in my head, Dr. Zach Bush. And mm -hmm. I'm probably sure you're familiar with him. And Dad, you know him as well. Oh, yeah. know him well, yeah. Because um, he's all about us being a part of this ecosystem and obviously the soil playing a, a very critical role in, in our health, in our microbiome as well. And he truly believes that one of the biggest threats to our existence on this planet is the loss of our topsoil. And he says within 60 years, there may not be any topsoil left, and therefore, they're not going to be able to grow food. So we really need to have more uh, farming practices like what, what you're doing, uh, because uh, we're going to be in trouble down yeah. the line if we don't do something now. Yeah. And it's, I mean, farming, the whole farming industry is very complicated. If you look at most farmers, a lot of people don't realize it's the number one suicide profession in the world um, is farmers which most people would never think that. They think, oh, how hard could that be? But it is very high stress, and it's getting more difficult with climate change. Um, like just this, this year in New Jersey, we had really hot weather, and then we had a snow just a few weeks ago, which for a farm is, like, devastating. Um, you know, we have to run out and try to cover our rows and do all these different things to try to not have a major setback. But it does send a lot of plants into stress. And if you figure you're a farm you're selling to a retailer that's going to take 60% of what you have. You're buying really expensive seeds. Um, you know, GMO seeds are not inexpensive and they're what's broadly used in the U.S. So their profit margin is tiny. And if you look, farms are more in debt than they've been in, I think, 50 years. It's hard for a farmer to take a risk and try something totally new. If they've been farming and they were taught by their dad and their dad was taught by their grandfather or their grandmother, um, you know, they're passing down this knowledge generation to generation, 
And they're completely fearful of being the farm that loses the family farm. And they're heavily in debt. So we have to change the whole system because it's not the farmers. It's not like farmers are just racking in the dough. A lot of farmers are really struggling. So they're very afraid of trying organic farming. What if it fails? What if I lose everything? Or trying new crops, you know. We grow 80% of our farms are growing five crops in the U.S. And those are subsidized crops and they're crops that you can get insurance behind. So they're kind of for them a sheer bet, even though they're far less profitable in the long run. It's a huge leap of faith for a farm to just be like, forget it. I'm going to just try regenerative farming and see how it goes for a few years. They don't have that luxury. So we really have to start making changes to the overall food system and farming and supporting farms to transition over to this with financial support because most of the financial support is not in that space. So it's it's tricky. You know, I, I've had a lot of people tell me, well, why don't more farms just do it? And if you really understand the history of farming and you know farmers, you also understand why they're resistant to make this change, which I think is devastating because I actually think if farmers moved in this direction they would be more profitable in the long run. And I think they would be far less reliant on other entities for their funding. Again, it's a huge barrier to overcome. So we need more people. Zach Bush is doing a great job educating your average consumer, educating um, even farmers that we can change this and even finding ways to fund farms to start converting over because it's so important. And, And I mentioned it's important for the planet's health and human health. Like they, they are absolutely connected and we kind of always leave one out of the equation when we discuss these things. So it's really important. Well, Jennifer, for today's wellness wisdom, I'd love it if you could talk about one thing or one tip that you can give our listeners uh, that they can incorporate into their diet. I think one of the most important things is to find ways to bring in more fruits and vegetables into the diet. One in 10 people in the U.S. gets the recommended servings of fruits and vegetables a day. We know that it's related to many, many chronic illnesses, um, not consuming enough fruits and vegetables and fiber. So I think that's one of the most important things. And I like to tell people Just think of it as when you go into a restaurant and you order your entree, which a lot of times is a big slab of meat, and they say, what do you want as your sides? And you say, oh, I'll have some rice and some broccoli. And they're these tiny portions. I just tell people to flip it. You know, the fruits and vegetables should be the main entree, and you should have an adequate, high-quality source of protein and and some some of the other components, uh, whether it, if you're um, eating, if you're concerned with gluten, gluten-free grains, um, but there's other things like the fats and and um, healthy uh, grains that you can bring into your diet. But I really just tell people flip it because then you're not going to have the added calories that you don't need from unhealthy sources. You're going to get that needed fiber into your body. You're going to get the phytonutrients that you need, and you're not going to be overdosing yourself with protein, which happens in a lot of um, uh, for a lot of Americans. So that would be kind of my my main tip if you go to longevity regions. And again, they're changing over time because a lot of unfortunately their younger population aren't adopting all of their practices. But if you go there and see a real traditional meal, you will absolutely see this across the board. And Longo jokes about it a little little bit in his book when he'll interview these centenarians and he'll say, do you eat meat? And they'll say, I ate it once, you know, I broke into a wedding and and stole some of the meat. And literally they're telling this story about the one time because they didn't realize he meant like daily consumption of meat. 
Um, so you really see this flip and this reversal of the portions and what they put their focus on, which is that fruits and vegetables. So that would be my number one tip. Lots of other good stuff too, but that would be, I think, the easiest thing that people could control and try to bring some color into that if you can. Well, Jennifer, thanks for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, folks. Before we go, I wanted to share an exclusive offer just for Be Healthistic listeners. Since we spoke in detail about the olive oil she makes, Jennifer Maynard has generously offered a free bottle of Nutrition for Longevity's polyphenol-rich organic olive oil and a copy of the Longevity Diet book with any meal kit or produce box ordered. This is a $25 value. To learn more about this offer and to get the special discount code, visit the episode page for today's podcast. That would be episode number 29 at BeHealthisticPodcast.com. And we'll provide you with the link and the code you'll need to take advantage of this amazing offer. Our thanks to Jennifer for extending this offer to our listeners. And we hope you enjoy. That's our show for today, folks. If you have a question or an idea for a show topic, please send us an email or share a post with us on Facebook. And remember, if you like what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorites. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And this is Be Healthistic. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. See you next time.